so welcome wherever you are from Santa Maria, Lompoc, Vandenberg Air Force Base, Napomo, Rio Grande, Orkut, uh, Texas, Colorado, Alaska, Utah, New Mexico, and even now uh, in Baghdad. And I would encourage all of you, if you would, to pray for one of our elders named Jonathan Whitaker. He is the lead elder at Element Colorado Springs, and he has been stationed in Baghdad for the next six months. I've got some pictures from him this morning, and the the cool point was 116 degrees. So if you could be saying some prayers for his safety, coming back, and, and all that, that would be great. Uh, we, I know you're asking about when Element is going to meet together, and we're putting together that guideline plan. Again, like we said today, it's still live stream. Next week, we're going to do something where we can maybe gather during one of those services. We'll let you know what all of that looks like coming up. But really, this relates into what we're going to talk about today, which is this whole idea of being a community of faith. Now, if you'd like to, you can download this app. It is called Uversion. In Uversion, you click on More and then Events, and then you'll type in 93455 as a zip code. We'll come up, and you will get the announcements, the verses we go through, uh, questions that go along with the message, all of those kind of things. Now, my name is Aaron. I am one of the pastors here, and this is the reading of God's Word. It is Acts 18, verses 24 to 26. And it says, Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, well-versed in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and was fervent in spirit. He spoke and taught accurately about Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him in and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Let's pray. Father, this morning we ask that you would teach us to be those people who understand the way of God more accurately, and that we would be those who live in the ways that you call us to out in this world as a body of people who believe in you together, living out this great faith that we have been given. I ask that you'd be glorified in what we say and do as our lives reflect on the good news of the gospel, which is your saving grace to us. Amen. Man, so this is actually week 20 of our trek through the second half of the book of Acts. And I think at this point, we've been live streaming just as much as we did non-live streaming at the beginning. So I don't know what that says really about anything. Today, I have some things I want to get to in talking to you about that community of faith and what that looks like. But in order to move the story along, I have to kind of go through some stuff that Paul goes through in order to get there. Sometimes when you teach expositorily, which means just through the scriptures as they are, you get to things that are a little bit disjointed. I'm hoping that you don't feel that way today, but you might. So if you do, uh, give me a little bit of grace. We're going to end where chapter 18 ends with Priscilla, Aquila, Apollos, looking at the communities of faith right where we are and how we live and how we live that out. Where we left off last week is that Paul, after being beaten, stoned with rocks, run out of towns, run out of synagogues, ends up eventually in this place called Corinth. He's a little down in the depths right now where he's at, uh, a little depressed, maybe a little anxiety, because he's in a place of decadence and sin. But God shows up, and God encourages Paul. He says, Paul, I am with you. Keep speaking about me. I am with you. Don't be afraid. He resets Paul's heart while there. And Paul will then stay in Corinth for another year and a half. And that's a pretty long time if you've noticed how Paul has constantly lived up to this point, almost like he's putting down roots. Now, Corinth itself had 
had actually been destroyed a couple of hundred years before Paul ever showed up. But it was refounded in 44 BC as a Roman colony. It became the capital of the area that it's in called Achaia. Now, Corinth was kind of like uh, people who love America, like America. Corinth is like Rome because it was a Roman colony. It loved its Roman status. It was more, some people said it was even more Roman than Rome itself. And last week we saw how Paul goes into this place, and he follows his normal course. He goes and debates in the synagogue with the Jews, and if they reject him, he then turns his message to the Gentiles. In his stay there, he will meet this Jewish couple who ran a business in the same line of work that he is in, and this is called tent making. And up to this point in Acts, we haven't learned how Paul made a living opposed to different churches just helping him. So how does he make that living? Well, he is a a tent maker. The impression that Luke gives is that Paul hasn't really stayed long enough anywhere to set up shop. Now he has. Now the word tent maker, it actually covers all kinds of leather and similar goods. And when you think of tent making, it's not like tents like we have. They're not nylon things with bendy sticks. You go out in the woods and you toss anywhere you want and sleep in it. These are military, they're industrial. And most likely what happens is Priscilla and Aquila have a business in Rome. Claudius the emperor kicks them out of Rome and they end up moving to this place called Corinth and Paul either comes in as a partner or just a hired worker. Sometimes people get surprised when pastors and churches end up also having jobs outside of churches. Like I personally, I am a co-owner of a small business in town. Now, sometimes we see things strange with that, but that culture wouldn't see strange like strange things like that about it at all. Like in that time, it was commonplace for Jewish teachers and rabbis to have trades by which to support themselves and their families. Because a synagogue at that time, these communities of faith, could be as small as ten people. Now, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 18. Now, there's, there's nothing wrong with the church paying pastors a living wage. I think th- they should. But the Philippian church is, is a church that had a lot of people in it. So they supported Paul while he was in Corinth at a place there wasn't really a church at all. So they're there in Corinth. They're working. Paul's teaching, preaching. Things seem to be going really well. And then you read this. Acts 18, starting in verse 12. When Gallio was pro-council of Achaia, the Jews coordinated an attack on Paul and brought him before the judgment seat. This man is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law, they said. But just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio told the Jews, If this matter involved a wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to hear your complaint. But since it is a dispute about words and names and your own law, settle it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of such things. And he drove them away from the judgment seat. At this the crowd seized Thosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the judgment seat. But none of this was of any concern to Gallio. Now, you might have missed it, but what just happened there in this place is Christianity was declared legal in this area. Gallio was the younger brother of this famous philosopher named Seneca, who was a tutor to the emperor Nero. Didn't do a great job because Nero was a crazy nut job. But Gallio was proconsul in this area in the second half of 51 AD to the early part of 52 AD. And he left because of poor health. And this is one of the few places we know exactly where Paul was when Paul was. This is sometime late 51 AD. 
Now, Christianity, it was this bizarre thing in the Roman Empire when it first came out. Because the Romans had previously given Jews the official status of a permitted religion, but it was very complex. Since at the time of Julius Caesar, Jews had been allowed to practice their own religion in their own way, and they were not forced to worship Roman gods. Now, the Romans typically were very practical in their rule. Not always kind, but typically practical. And they realized from their point of view, the Jewish people were remarkably stubborn in matters of religion and worshiping their one true God. Many times they'd resist to the point of death. Like most people that the Romans conquered would just be like, yeah, we'll worship whatever. The Jews were like, no way, we will worship God alone. The imperial cult was actually set up in Rome to make all the people in the Roman Empire worship the emperor of Rome. Uh, Actually, if you'd like to see it, this is a temple that was in Corinth, one of the largest ever around to this Roman emperor cult. Now, they looked at the Jews and they said, what are we going to do? The Jews aren't going to worship emperor, the emperor as God, so what do we do with them? And they realized in the end it was more trouble than it was worth to impose these regulations on the Jews. So they said to the Jews, you can pray for the emperor, but you don't have to pray to the emperor. They were the only people given that admonition. So the question that dangles over the early church at several points in Acts is, does being a Christian mean you are worshiping illegally according to Roman laws and customs? Like, should the Roman government be stamping out this thing called Christianity? Or was the community of Jesus' followers just a variant of Judaism and therefore to be permitted? How does this work out? Well, the Christians claim that they were the fulfillment of all that the Jewish scriptures spoke about, that Jesus was the Messiah, and they were there as fulfillment of that, so they were essentially Jewish. The Jewish communities who opposed Christianity repudiated all those claims, much like the Apostle Paul did before he came to know who Jesus was. And so why do so many Jews try to get the government to not recognize Christianity? Well, there's a few things in this. First off, the Christians did not insist that people who were not non-Jewish in their ancestry needed to be circumcised, like the converts to Christianity didn't have to be circumcised, and that's a big deal in Judaism. Secondly, Christians insisted that Jews and Gentiles actually eat together and share life together, and Jews for a very long time wanted to separate themselves from everybody else in the world. They didn't want to be contaminated by all the evil around them, and Christians said, no, we're going to do life together. The third thing is that Christians expressed like this early repudiation of the temple in Jerusalem, saying we don't need to go to the temple to sacrifice. Jesus is our final sacrifice. The Jews also felt that if Christians got into a lot of trouble because they'd go around saying, Jesus King, Jesus is Lord, it might cause Roman backlash against all Jews because it's guilt by association, so they wanted to stop it. Here, how they go to stop it is you have this ruler of the synagogue. He's a new ruler because the old one believed in the message of Jesus and followed, so they got a new ruler in the synagogue, and they bring these charges against Paul that he is inciting people to worship God in illegal ways. Gallio has to decide if it's actually illegal, so he must have taken some time to read a little bit of theology between the differences of Christianity versus Judaism. And what does he come back with? It is a dispute about words and names and your own law. Settle it yourselves. He says, you're the same thing. 
I don't know what you're arguing about. It's not a crime or wrongdoing and not something that Roman law or lawyers need to be worrying themselves about. It is a huge victory for Christianity. It's probably why Luke includes it here. And it is more than Christians could have hoped for. Now, eventually, the Romans did come to see Judaism and Christianity as being different. Like, as soon as you get to, like, 110 A.D., uh, Pliny is the governor of a place called Bithynia. And his correspondence shows that professing Christianity in that place at that time is a serious offense punishable by death. But here, Gallio's ruin gives a ton of breathing room to these communities of faith in southern Greece. Then the crowd that, that were there trying to get Paul thrown in jail or murdered for the things that he said, they decided, well, we're going to beat up our new synagogue ruler because it didn't happen the way we wanted. I'm assuming this happened because maybe this guy ran on the platform of, I'll get rid of Paul if you make me the synagogue ruler. I don't know. But they beat him up right there. And this Judge Gallio, he doesn't even care. N.T. Wright says this, The world still waits for the true judgment which will sort everything out once and for all. Which is true. The one true judge one day will sort everything out once and for all. Uh, Verse 18 of chapter 18. Paul remained in Corinth for quite some time before saying goodbye to the brothers. He had his head shaved in Centuria to keep a vow he had made. And he then sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, A lot of commentators believe Paul most likely made a vow to God when God spoke to him. So he's been growing his hair for a year and a half. Here he cuts it before he moves on. Verse 19. When they reached Ephesus, Paul parted ways with Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue there and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a while longer, he declined. But as he left, he said, I will come back to you again if God is willing. And he set sail from Ephesus. When Paul landed in Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church in Jerusalem. Then he went down to Antioch. And these words are really just moving Paul to where you're going to find him next week in Antioch and Ephesus. It'll end up being Paul's third missionary journey. Verse 23, after Paul spent some time in Antioch, he traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples, strengthening all those communities of faith. And then you get to verse 24. Uh, Meanwhile, the ESV will use the word now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. So now you get a brand new character in the story. But what that character is going to do, it shows you what happens in these communities of faith after Paul is no longer there. What do they do? How are they moving forward? What does that look like? And so Luke starts, you know, recounting this thing with Gallio. What happens there? Paul shows Paulani in Ephesus, saying, okay, I'll be back. Like the Terminator, I'll be back. And then blast through all these places in this large area. There's probably lots of cool things that happen, but Luke is trying to move us to understand something about what these churches, these places of faith begin to look like. Now, in storytelling, sometimes when you hear the word now or meanwhile or things like that, it's kind of a parallel plot that takes place outside of the main character. Like uh, the rebels are fighting the Empire on the planet while Luke Skywalker is battling Darth Vader up in the Death Star. That's a meanwhile. Like Frodo is going to destroy the ring in Mount Doom. Meanwhile, Aragon is battling the forces of Sauron and establish himself as the king. Uh, Daenerys Targaryen is consolidating her kingdom with these dragons. Meanwhile, the white walkers are amassing a horde to take over Westeros. We are living our lives a certain way, and and meanwhile, the COVID-19 is breaking out to come and affect us all. Eventually, in stories, these plot points all begin to come together and things get resolved. But in Luke's story, after he talks about Apollos here, he doesn't ever really come back to it. 
And there's a reason for that. Because the story isn't about Apollos. And the story isn't about Paul. And the story isn't about Peter. The story is about the gospel moving forward in this region and in this area. How God takes his name forward. The story is all about God. It is Jesus who is the main character. Like when Paul shows up in Ephesus, there's this community of believers of faith already being active there. Almost everywhere Paul goes, God is already doing something. God is active in those places. Paul is just showing up and moving along with what God is already doing. God is bringing people together and how these communities come together based on what is happening here. So I want to show you what that looks like and talk about what those communities of faith do in these places. So again, let me read these verses to you, starting in verse 24. Meanwhile, or now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, well-versed in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and was fervent in spirit. He spoke and taught accurately about Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And so you see three things that are now taking place in these different communities of faith. The first one is that the community of God springs up right where we already are. That is the first thing you see. You go all the way back to the beginning of Acts 18, and it says, After Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. Paul goes into this area where there is no churches that he can see at this point, and he's a tent maker, so he goes to where the tent makers are. Let me put it a different way. They developed a deep friendship that grew deeper and bigger that came from the workplace. Paul did not fabricate some experience to make a connection. He's just simply doing what he's trained to do outside of being a teacher. And again, no church in Corinth, so he goes where the other leather workers and craftsmen are. He meets two people. They become lifelong companions in the gospel. Where does it start? in the workplace, in the marketplace. Later, what you see happens, this guy named Apollo shows up in the synagogue. Priscilla and Aquila have kind of taken over the ministry of Paul in a lot of senses, and they see that Apollos doesn't know all of the story. So they invite him to their home. And these are just meant to be these ordinary places of where we do life. Uh, The workplace, the marketplace, the home, where you do life. This is God building his kingdom right where we are. Frederick Buechner says this, The place God calls you to is where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meets. And this is one of the reasons why Element is a place that we center ourselves around these things called gospel communities. Because it's meant to be people learning how to live life together. It's not one night a week we get together and talk about whatever Aaron talked about in some sermon at some point. It's that we begin to live lives together in different areas of life. Uh, There's this book that came out a few years ago by George Hunter called The Celtic Wave of Evangelism. And in it, he talks about the Roman wave of evangelism and the Celtic wave of evangelism. And not that there's anything wrong with either one. They both work at different times in different places. But typically, a Roman wave of evangelism, uh, a Western way, is that you invite people to a large gathering. You have an authoritative speaker who gets up and gives a message, and they invite people to believe. And when they believe, their behavior changes, and after that happens, they become part part of that family, then they belong. It's believe, behave, and then you get to belong. 
Now, George Hunter talks about how the early church and how Patrick goes into Ireland does it completely differently. They have a model where they set up all these communities, and they invited people to come in and belong to those communities. And out of that, people's lives would begin to change how they live and what their lifestyles look like. Their behavior would change, and eventually they would believe. And so it was belong, and all of a sudden their lives would change, and then they believed. That's really the Celtic way, and that's what you see happens a lot of times in the early church. What you see here is the community of God happens in workplaces and homes and schools and friendships where we already are. And so what we probably need to do a bit in our lives, especially right now in the midst of the pandemic, is ask God to show us what He is doing right where we are right now. So the community of God springs up where we are. The second thing you see is that in this community of God, they begin to disciple each other because that's what a community of faith does. We walk alongside one another in everyday life situations. It's like this. Apollo shows up. He's going to town. Verse 25. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and was fervent in spirit. Uh, fervent means passionate. It means boiling over. It can be translated as burning with the spirit. It's trying to show you that he is actually saved. He has believed in Jesus as his Savior, as his Messiah. And this is boiling over in his life. And it says he spoke and taught accurately about Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. Now, John's baptism is a baptism of repentance. And so it's not necessarily the baptism Jesus brings, because in Jesus' baptism, though we do repent, it is one that the kingdom of God is open to all people. In Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit takes us and baptizes us. He immerses us into the family of God. We are all adopted, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female. That's what that is about. And so what happens is Apollos may still be preaching some type of thing of you need to be circumcised to become a Jew, to become part of the family of God. And they explain to him, no, that's not how this works anymore. God is bringing all people together who wouldn't normally be together. Apollos, he doesn't have all the knowledge. So they bring him in and they speak with him and they disciple him along. Apollos is someone who we learn is learned in the scriptures. That would be the Old Testament scriptures. He speaks really well. He is trained and educated in a place called Alexandria, one of the most prestigious places for education in the known world at that time. And he has passion. What Priscilla and Aquila don't say is, oh, you don't know what you're talking about, you can't speak. Instead, they come alongside him and they take him into a deeper understanding. They say, let's see what's there. Let's invite him into our home. Let's spend some time with him. Both of them do this. And what you have is kind of like the blue-collar laborers, you know, the, the mechanic instructing the Harvard graduate about the practical outworkings of the gospel. They maybe could have even been intimidated by Apollos because he is so educated, but they didn't let that stop them from community and discipleship with one another. You see, Priscilla and Aquila both instruct him, and I'm sure he helped them as well, back and forth, mutual discipleship. And so what we need to ask ourselves is, who has brought us along in our life? Who is bringing us along right now? Who are we bringing along? And that's the question because it's also about giving and receiving both. And when I say that, I don't mean Bible study. So it can include things like that. But it really means living out all of our lives in a way that honors God where we are and what we're currently doing. What does the garbage man have to teach the rocket scientist? Well, probably a lot about life and living in ways that honor God together. See, discipleship isn't just getting people together to understand the deep mysteries of God. It's how to live all of our lives together in ways that please Him. 
And that could be small step that takes years to come to fruition. It could be huge leaps and bounds. But is there anyone in your life that you could or should be bringing along in many ways? It's not about making other people think exactly like you do about the COVID-19 or masks or no masks. It's about you knowing not have no every mystery of God in the Bible, but learning how to walk day by day with Him in all that we do. It means that we are all learners with one another, that we have all learned different things in different times and different ways, and we can help one another learn those different things together. And the beauty is that Apollos gets this, and he becomes humble enough to listen and to learn together. Apollos has learned how to speak, how to reason, how to bring about his arguments. He probably has tons of letters after his name like PhD and things like that. But he gets to learn real life experience and heart knowledge instead of just head knowledge from Priscilla and Aquila. It's that mutual learning and mutual teaching and walking together. Sometimes when I have conversations with people, I'll throw out a big word and they're like, huh? i got to explain what that big word means. I sometimes will read theology books for fun. But I also have so much to learn from so many people. And I think when we're honest, all of us are teachers of one another. Even sometimes, you know, the, the smallest children around us can disciple and lead us as well when we're in community with them. Like a, like a kid under eight, they don't know Greek or Hebrew. Sometimes they barely even speak English. But we can learn so much from them as a community that grows together. I might have told you this story before, but about a year and a half ago, I'm sitting on a, on, in a boat in the middle of a lake with five kids under eight years old. And I'm going to be discipled in just a moment when this happens, right? So one of the kids pointed out at my ring finger, at my ring and my ring finger, and said, why do you wear that? Meaning my ring. And I said, hmm, in my head, yeah, why do I wear that? I said, it shows I'm married. So this little girl says, well, can you be married without the ring? And I'm like, oh, that's a good question. And and I said, yes. It's kind of like how Christians today say things like, uh, can you be married without discipling one another? Well, yes, but you're not living the full life God is calling us to. Can you uh, be a Christian and not go to church? Uh, Well, Yeah, but really going to church together with people is part of what we live our lives out with one another as as Christians. So can you be married without the ring? Well, that's a good question. You know, so I said yes, and she scrunched up her face. So I said, okay, I want everyone to know that I have promised to love someone exclusively. And she didn't know what exclusively meant. So I thought a little bit more. And I said, God loves us. And God gives us lots of gifts in our lives to remind us of who he is and his love for us. I said, for, th- for me, this ring reminds me not only of God's grace by bringing my wife into my life, but I am committed to her in a way that I am committed to no one else. And either she was bored or that finally satisfied her. I don't know which, but it made me grow because I had to think about it. And I've used that at a couple weddings at this point, And it made it into a sermon. So there you go. Kids teach us to grow. Kids teach us to delight in the dumbest things, to have hope sometimes when there is no hope. The way of life and discipleship is not just about letters behind our names or learning all the things about the Bible. It's that we all have things to teach one another. And book knowledge doesn't always transfer to life knowledge. And we are meant to live out our lives in honor of who God is with one another. So we look around and see who we can pour ourselves into, who is pouring themselves into us, what we humbly give and we humbly receive. That's what a community of faith looks like in Acts. And the third thing you see in Acts is that it takes everyone, or it takes all kinds of people. Many times in churches, people think the most important person is the person with the microphone, like this guy right here, because I'm, I'm talking to you. 
uh, I'll tell you what element, the most important person element is Jesus. It has always been Jesus. It always will be Jesus. In Acts 18, verses 27 and 28, it says this, When Apollos resolved to cross over to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. On his arrival, he greatly aided those who by grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public debate, proving by the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Now, this is a very public ministry that Apollos is in at this point. He leaves Corinth, or he leaves the place where he is. He goes back to Corinth, where Paul planted a seed, and he starts to work here. And people are like, oh, look at that. Apollos is so great. But Apollos was already discipled by Priscilla and Aquila that led him to the places where he is here. And because Apollos is so good at what he does, the church starts to divide over who is the most important. And some people are like, Paul is better. They're like, oh no, Apollos is better. Less filling, tastes great. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. Paul has to write them in his letter to the Corinthians that this is all nonsense. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 4 through 7, he says, For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Paul says, stop it. Stop elevating people. It is Jesus is the one you're supposed to worship and listen to. And even today, people will fight over their favorite teachers all the time. And Paul says, that's just dumb. We today tend to put a lot of weight on personality. Again, sometimes people look at what I do with the microphone and they think, well, I can never do that. If I get up there, I just, I just pee my pants. But there are tons of things that other people do that I cannot do or even imagine doing. God has given us all gifts. It takes all of us together to live out and be this community of faith. I mean, think about Priscilla and Aquila. You know, they invite Paul into their business. They invite, they invite Apollos into their home. You never read them being like these great speakers. They're just a couple called in a relationship with Jesus. And it's Jesus who, gives the, who they give themselves to, and in so doing, they give themselves to others around them. Paul will say this in Romans 16, verses 3 through 5. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow, fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. To this couple. He says, greet also the church in their house. Today, you know what? We are mostly a church of Gentiles. We don't know Priscilla and Aquila's whole story, but we know we owe much of the faith that we have today to them and what they did. Normal people, quote unquote, normal people change the course of the church because it takes all kinds for the church to be the community of faith that we are. I mean, there are lots of these places where God leads us to in our lives in different ways. Uh, Sometimes it's just talking to someone. Sometimes it's praying for someone, inviting someone over in friendship. We all learn from each other, and that enables us to love each other better. And many times that doesn't happen from up here. It doesn't happen from up here. It happens with you. The gospel lived out in real ways and real lives. Every one of us has a ministry. Some are more prominent than others. Some are hard to see. But it's the understanding of this community exactly where we are, where we disciple each other where we are, as we use the gifts God has given us right where we are to proclaim the good news. See, the family of God lives out the good news of who He is in the world. The family of God is who we are as a people. 
And we, and we, it happens where we are right now. It happens as we disciple one another. It takes all of us together. That's what that looks like. This is why when we talk about things like communion, every week at Omen, it's a reminder that God is the one who has rescued us and he has taken us all and placed us all in his family. Not the best speakers, not the most intelligent, not just the, the dock workers or the tent makers. It's all of us, all of us, one people in God's family coming together to worship and serve him and speak of the good news of the gospel in the world. That happens because of what Jesus has done. And so this morning, if you would like to, I invite you to take communion at home where you would take a cracker or bread and you would break it and you would dip it or drink some wine or grape juice with it. That reminds us of Christ's great sacrifice to bring us all into his family. That God has always been doing a work since the moment we ran away from him in the garden. That Jesus comes he rescues, and he calls us into his family as a people. So I'm going to invite the band to come up, and I'm going to invite Michael to actually move this podium for me because he's much stronger than I am. <laughs> but as, as this happens, I want to invite you. If you need prayer today that you would take on the corner if you're watching on the, on the live stream, and you would, on that corner of that live stream, you would maybe write down uh, a prayer request you have, and we'll pray with you. Uh, you can also log into our Zoom call today. Uh, which will be at 12.30 right after service, the third service today. Uh, and one of our elders would love to pray with you. Uh, you can also send a prayer request to connect at ourelement.org. And they'd love to pray with you there as well. Just let us know so we can begin praying with you as a community of faith coming together around one another. I mean, we're, we're very excited that... You know, the, they're starting to relieve some of the restrictions that are on us. We can start to gather together in different ways in different places because we are called to be a people who do life together, who learn from one another. And I know we can sometimes do that over Zoom, but Zoom isn't always the funnest. But we can now begin to do a little bit more of that together, uh, hopefully speaking into one another's lives that bring about the understanding of God's good grace given to us. Uh, at Element, we talk about giving because giving is always part of our worship. Uh, you can do that online. Uh, you can mail donations to 4890 Bethany Lane, Santa Maria, California, 93455. Uh, we continue to give to those around us who are in need. And so we, we do that as well. So giving is part of Element's corporate worship as a community of faith, as a church together as well. Because we want to encourage all of you to begin to understand the great things that God continues to do for all of us. His great love and grace working in the places that many times we don't even see or notice. But He is working. He is working. And we as a people need to begin to understand that discipleship is not a million different Bible studies, though Bible study can and is part of it. But it's learning how to live every single day with one another in ways that honor Jesus together. And so that is real discipleship. Teaching and living with one another ways that reflect the good news of who God is and His rescue of us. And that is so important in the midst of what we're going through right now. Being a people who reflect the good news and the hope and the grace that God gives above everything else. Because He is our great Savior and we are His community of faith. Let's pray. Uh, Father, this morning, I ask that you would take us to be a people who understand what you are doing in the midst of us, especially in the midst of something like this COVID-19 thing that's still going on, and the decisions of people in authority over us that we agree or don't agree with. But in the midst of all of it, I ask that you would teach us to worship you first, 
to trust you first in all of these things. That we as your people, not just necessarily as element, but as the church worldwide, would be those who bring hope and grace to the world around us because we are living out the hope and the grace that we have already received. As we always say that we would be those who are going to love because you have first loved us. That all we do would be a reflection of who you are because you are good. Father, teach us today to remember to look for all the places you are already at work in our lives. To look for the people that we can come alongside of and who are coming alongside of us and be thankful and grateful for that. That we would understand that it does take all kinds. It takes all of us as a people together. Living, loving, serving you because you are the one who brings us in and you make us one family. That we are yours. So teach us to be a people who live in love because we have first been loved. That we would be a community of faith that honors you and worships you in all things. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.